Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, as we read verses 14 through 21. Hear now the word of God. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you keep your promise today that when your children come to you asking for bread, you will not give us a stone. We ask for your word. We ask for Christ. We ask you to give us soft and tender hearts, not of hardened Pharisees, but of bruised reeds under your care. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This morning's passage opens with an explanation that the Pharisees have conspired against Jesus, how to destroy him. It's important for us to remember why. Uh, Remember, Jesus showed mercy to the man in the synagogue, the man with the withered hand. And in Jesus' discussion of the Sabbath, what did Jesus do to the Pharisees? He challenged their understanding of the Sabbath, and he challenged them to think deeply about what the Lord's Day is actually for. See, he didn't overturn the Sabbath, he didn't eliminate it, But he challenged the Pharisees because they saw it as a day of restriction and constriction. And he wanted them to see it as a day of mercy and worship. So Jesus conceived of the Sabbath in in positive terms. And they saw it primarily as as a list of what they ought not to do. And in the process, he told them, you don't even understand the scripture. The, The Sabbath is still for today, but it's not a straight jacket. It's a gift. The Sabbath is, not to stre- is to strengthen you. It's not to weaken you. It's not to hobble you. It's, it's for the good of others. It's not an excuse for you to withdraw when others need you most. So they don't understand the scripture where it says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And Jesus is setting them straight. There's probably no greater insult that he could have given to the Pharisees than to tell them that they did not understand the scripture. They prided themselves on their interpretation of scripture. They thought nobody could hold a candle to them when it came to their devotion to the law of Moses. And at this point, Jesus becomes aware of a Pharisee conspiracy to destroy him. And so Matthew tells us that he withdrew from there. Rather than meet the challenge head on, he says, now's not the time, and he withdraws. So Jesus withdraws in this context where he's been showing mercy to people. He's been showing kindness to people. People who were hurting found relief with him. People who were sick found healing. People who were oppressed found freedom. You name it, 
Jesus is pouring out mercy on all who come to him. And at this point, Matthew makes this comment in verse 17. And and in a sense, it's very typical of Matthew to do this. If you've read the other Gospels, if you've read Mark and Luke and John, you will see places where they will point out that Jesus fulfills the word of God. But nobody does it as much as Matthew. This is Matthew's hallmark. It is the thing that makes Matthew stand out from the other Gospels. He is intensely interested in showing us that Jesus is the one that was predicted in God's word. And so what does Matthew say in verse 17? This, that is his healing of all these people, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And so what I would simply like to do today is just dwell on the grace that Matthew sees in this passage from Isaiah. And I want us to just luxuriate in who the Lord Jesus is, in the kindness that Jesus shows, in the mercy of his healing, in the kindness of his touch. Because this passage in Isaiah doesn't just illuminate what's taken place, right? It's not just about what he's done. It's about who he is. This prophecy casts light on our Lord. And one thing I love about this Matthew series, and and perhaps it's part of the reason why we've been moving through Matthew so slowly and methodically. I don't know know what you're used to if you're used to hearing a chapter at a time. Uh, I couldn't bear to go a chapter at a time through Matthew um, because it's just so good to be with Jesus. I'm not in a hurry for us to move on too quickly if there's something here that's worth seeing. Um... It is so good to see the heart of Jesus. It's so amazing to spend time with him. Jesus is magnetic. He is wonderful. There is a reason the people flock to him. He is everything that we should be. He's everything that we wish we were. Why would we be in a rush to move past him? And so, you know, we're pumping the brakes. We're looking at the life of Jesus slowly. Well, today Matthew gives us something really precious about the life and ministry of of Jesus that he's not a hard savior, he is a gentle savior. He is gracious towards sinners. He's not harsh. He's not one to be afraid of. He is one to flee to. And he has a word for us if we're hurting. He has a word for us to help us, uh, to love us, and to help us serve people as well. So, so not only do we receive something generous from him here in this passage, even as we see his heart, but we're also given something that we can give to others too. And so I want us to focus on two simple truths this morning. First is the bruised reed, right? This is the one that Jesus is merciful toward. But then second, the bruised ministry. This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus expects those who know him to embody as well. So it's a two-pointer today, not very medieval of me. If you're here for the worship series, you'll know what what I'm talking about. Um, First of all, the bruised reed. When telling us about Jesus from Isaiah's prophecy, Matthew says this. He says, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. Now, I don't know if you see it or if you feel it right away when we read this, but one of the deepest, most comforting, and sweetest passages in the whole ministry of Jesus is actually this, where Matthew sees the tenderness of the Messiah in the Gospel of Isaiah, and he points to the life of Jesus, and he says, see, he's doing it. He's doing the thing that God said the Messiah would do. 
Um, I suspect the strangeness of the language might prevent us from really understanding what he's saying. I'd love to do a poll. This is what I do during sermons, so I'm not going to. But I'd love to do a poll and ask, what, do you understand what it means when it says a bruised reed? Do you understand what it means by a smoldering wick? I, I, you know, I don't know how many of us actually get it them, our, ourselves, but let's think about what, it, what they mean. A bruised reed, literally speaking, is a frail plant that has been bumped or bent. I, I don't do much gardening. My wife does all the gardening. She likes being out. She likes being uh, among the green things. And all I see is dirt. So I stay inside and keep my shoes clean. Um, unless, unless I'm needed. I'll do it if I'm called upon. But it's not how I, it's not how I normally spend my time. Um, but you've surely seen this, right? Where you, maybe you had a plant inside and you... You reached up past it and you bumped it and you see it slump over. You see it fall over. It's not dead, but it certainly seems to be in danger of being dead. Um, It's in danger of falling over completely and collapsing and it needs to be healed. Well, Matthew mentions this phrase, a smoldering wick. He will not quench, right? That's a candle that's moments from burning out. It's still got a little bit of, of heat to it. And if it could just be blown on, it would come back to life. I think... These are similar ideas. They're both meant to evoke the same idea, right? Both of these refer to tender, broken-hearted people who know that their only hope is Jesus, right? There's there's nothing they're going to see in themselves. There's nothing beautiful in themselves. They they certainly don't think of themselves that way. They're broken-hearted. So the question isn't really, what is a bruised reed? The real question is, who is a bruised reed? You can actually discern it from the passage itself. Think about this. Think of the context. Matthew has just told us about Jesus healing the man with the withered hand. He's talked about the need to understand mercy instead of sacrifice. And then even when his life was in danger, what did he do? He continued to heal people. Think about what that healing ministry of Jesus meant. You not only came to Jesus, you only came to Jesus if you actually knew that you were sick, right? Jesus ministers to those who, not to those who knew that they were well. He ministered to those who knew that they were unwell. He ministers to those who know that something is very wrong with them. And this is where I, I, if if any of you know much about Puritanism, you probably guessed that I was going to mention this name at some point. But Richard Sibbs was a famous Puritan pastor. He preached a series of sermons on this passage. And one of the points that he made was that a bruised reed can be both a broken-hearted Christian who is saddened by his sin or a person who hasn't come to Christ yet, but he senses his sin and he senses his need for sin or or her need for sin. I need to uh, mention that. A man or a woman, a boy or a girl, someone who sees their need for Jesus. And, and Sib says it could be either one. You can be a Christian, someone who is brokenhearted over your sin, and that would make you a bruised reed, and you need to hear that message right now. And then you could also be someone who hasn't come to Christ yet, but you're crushed by your sin. You know something has to happen, something has to give, and you see before you Jesus. And Sibs said both of these people are being spoken of by this passage in Isaiah. You see, the bruised reed is a person who is in misery, and because of of his or her misery, they come to Jesus for help. And and this is also a person who sees their sin as the cause of their ministry. I think it's very important for us to say that. 
The sin is the cause of the ministry, misery, and the person who knows that they need Jesus know that sin is at the core, the problem of, with their life. Jesus loves the bruised reeds. He loves those who are helpless. He loves those who are harassed and in need of a shepherd. He loves those who sense their sin and sense their need of a savior. One of the things that saddens me much about the contemporary church in our own nation is that many times preachers, they attempt to build a large following by working to make people feel good about themselves. That's actually the fundamental first step is actually saying to people, you know, you're not as bad as you think. They, they, they see the problem with humanity as you have too low a sense of yourself. If only you could think great things about yourselves, then you would feel better and then you would be better. And then we would have a very positive church and a very positive place. And yet the Bible has such hard things to tell us about the state of our own hearts, right? That's the, that's the first three chapters of Romans. We've been reading that on Sunday mornings. Paul begins with hard news about the state of our own heart. But you can't get to the beauty of a passage like Romans 8 if you don't have a passage like Romans 1. Right? If, you, if you don't have a passage where God tells you what you're like, then when he tells you the greatness of his mercy in chapter 8, it is not going to resonate. Because you actually think you're fantastic. Why do I need encouragement of something like Romans chapter 8. Why do I need to hear about my sin in Romans 6 and 7? All of these things fit together. And so the contemporary church, oftentimes, when it tries to cheer us up, but to do it by simply helping us to see ourselves as great individuals or people who have a large capacity for goodness, we miss the mark. And we wonder why we even have the Bible in the first place. So you've got this wide divergence, don't you? On the one hand, you have some people out there with a greatly elevated sense of self, right? They're told that if they feel bad about themselves, that they're holding themselves back. They really need to have a great sense of self-esteem. But then you also have this other error, this other reality. You have people who are, who are so bowed down and they're so low that they cannot even lift their eyes up to the Lord Jesus, right? Their problem is not that they think too much about themselves, it's that they've become hopeless. That they think there is no, no one to lift their eyes up to. Um, they feel terrible about themselves. It's actually not the goal of even Romans chapter 1. The goal of Romans chapter 1 is not to make us feel bad about ourselves. It's meant to make us feel helpless, which those are different things. If you know your Bible and you know what it says about human sin, you might think that this... This is a little bit of an improvement from the self-esteem movement, right? But here's the problem. Oftentimes people feel bad about themselves, but not about their sin. People feel bad about themselves, but not about their sin. Go out into the streets, talk to people. You'll find hopeless folks. But, you won't, but ask them why. Ask them why they feel so poorly about themselves. And they will tell you things about themselves. I don't like the way I look. I don't like my life circumstances. Uh, I don't like the mistakes I've made. I don't like the things about myself that other people notice and point out. And yet ask them, how do you feel about your sin? And very often they'll, they'll say, What's, what are you talking about? What's sin? 
If you don't think your sin is a problem, you won't come to Jesus. Just because someone feels badly about themselves does not mean they're a bruised reed. The bruised reed knows that sin is at the core of the problem of their heart. And so you come to Jesus because you think sin is your problem. You, you see, Jesus, the person who doesn't see their sin, won't come to the Savior. So people often think that they can see the problems in their life. They think the problem is other people. They think the problem is their environment. They think their problem is things that other people did. They think that their upbringing or, some, or something out of their control is at fault. And I should say, there is no doubt the world around us is a place of trouble. There is no doubt that things have happened to bring great misery upon us. And there is no doubt that our environment is one that is impacted terribly by sin. But we have got to see at the end of the day that if everything around us was fixed, if we had the best upbringing you could imagine, if we lived in a perfect environment, our own heart would still not be right. The bruised reed is the person who recognizes this. My sin is still my biggest problem. I may have other problems, but there is no problem in my life greater than my own sin. Blaise Pascal said that man's fundamental problem is he cannot sit alone in a room by himself. Um, He didn't even live with smartphones. We can't be at peace even if we're in a nice environment. Um, We go stir crazy because we were made to know God. And fundamentally, if we don't know him, if we never repent and we never come to terms with our sin, then we're certainly not going to find our rest in him. We're going to look for some other worldly kind of relief. If this passage is teaching us anything today, it is at least teaching us this. The misery sin creates in your life is something that can ultimately only be answered by Jesus Christ. The bruised reed is the person who sees that his sin has to be answered for and that it has to be repented of. Even now, you can place your faith in Christ and confess your sin and you can ask him to give him your spirit and to be your savior. This is a great human need. This is, this is the human need. It is the, it's actually the conclusion that all of the world around us wants every answer except Something in me. I can do something. I can, I can achieve something. I can do something. I can, I can be worthy. I can, I can prove myself. I, I can read all of the books and do things to make my situation better. I, I can get a better job. I can have an, a, a better house, a, a better car. I can improve my environment, my situation. And then someone says, well, come to Jesus. And you say, are you crazy? I'll do everything but that. And if you come to him, though recognizing the emptiness of all the other solutions. Here's what Matthew is telling us. He won't answer your confession and your humility by throwing your sin back in your face. You can really come to him with what you really have. And that's part of what it means that he doesn't break a bruised reed. He will show you mercy. He will receive you. You won't be broken by Christ, but you'll receive his life and his healing instead. Jesus is a skilled physician. He can repair any misery, even a broken heart. That doesn't mean that the consequences of sin in this life go away when you come to Jesus. Um, But what he does say is this. All of your hurt, all of your pain, all of your sin 
will be answered in him. So when you're looking for the answer, you will look to the Lord Jesus who experienced hurt all his own, pain all his own, the consequences of our sin all his own, and he will answer them in himself. So when you come to him, you're not coming to somebody who has no idea what it's like to hurt, somebody who has no idea what it is to suffer. Instead, Jesus comes bearing good news if you're a bruised reed. And if you're sitting here today and you, and you just resonate with this idea, you say, I feel like I am that person. I feel like I'm the bruised reed. I feel like all it takes is one judgmental word from, from God and I would tumble right over. Jesus is saying, he won't do that to you. He won't do that to you. He comes to you with promises. He comes to you with words of mercy. But how? How can he do that? How, how can we ground what Jesus does? Where, where does it come from? Well, that takes us to the second half of what we need to see today, which is the importance of a bruised ministry. Now, I'm specifically talking about Jesus here, but this has an application for us as well. Uh, Jesus was able to minister to those who were bruised because of what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53.5. I'm going to read you the King James Version because it uses the word bruised, and that serves my purpose as well today. So, <laughs> in the King James, Isaiah 53.5 says that Jesus was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. So Isaiah is teaching, in a sense, something that brings us full circle here. Jesus won't break the one who is bruised because he himself was bruised. He is the bruised one. He was bruised for our iniquities. He was bruised as a substitute. Here's what this means. This means that, that Jesus was not an inspirational figure who served as an example for us. That is not the plan. That's not why he came. That's what, not why the, God, by the book of, of Isaiah says that Jesus came. It says that he came to be a substitute in our place. He suffered and was punished in the place of another who was not him. He himself was sinless. He deserved no death. He deserved no suffering. He was perfect and pure. But here's the thing. The ones that he was the substitute for were not. Right? We weren't perfect. We weren't pure. We weren't the opposite. We were the opposite of those things. We were as covered in filth as we could be. Christ was condemned in our place. He received what we deserve. That's why he suffered. That's why he was put to death. That's why Isaiah says he was wounded for our transgressions. Because he had no transgressions and we did. He had no iniquities. He had no sins. But we did. And so he was bruised in our place. That's why what Isaiah is prophesying here, his his bruising is a guarantee that he would never crush the one who comes to him. He would never do that because he was bruised for them. Why would he bruise us when he received the bruises that, we're supposed to, that he was, we were supposed to receive? What good would it do to strike us when he was struck for us? Do you understand? The, the ministry of Jesus is the ministry of a hurt and limping Savior who walked in weakness and harm and humiliation. 
And here's what the book of Hebrews does. The book of Hebrews directly makes this connection. He, it directly makes the connection between the bruisedness, the, 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 the humility of Jesus and what took place and us. Listen to what, he, what it says in Hebrews 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Here's, here's the key. Listen to this. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but, the, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then draw near with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. Listen to this again. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Do you see what the author says? Jesus doesn't crush. He sympathizes. Why? Chapter 5, verse 2 He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Do you see what what I see the author of Hebrews saying? He deals gently with bruised reeds because he was bruised. That word can, right? He can deal gently. That word can tells us that the bruising makes the gentleness possible. He is gentle And he is enabled to be gentle because he was bruised. If you are hurt and bruised by what your own sin has done to you, I'm not talking about the sins that others have committed against you, and I am sure the list is very long. But if you're hurt and bruised by what your own sin has done to you, the author says, go to him. Look to him. Seek him. Pray pray to him. Rest on him and You will find him faithful. He will not turn you away. And he certainly will not strike you. Now let me be very clear before I go to a word of application here. We make a big mistake if we don't look at Jesus in these things. If he's not the centerpiece of what we're talking about here. If we don't look to Jesus and point others to Jesus, then, then what we do here and what I'm about to say next ends up being moralizing. So if if we just say, well, look, you should be gentle with others. Don't break other believers who are hurting, right? If that's the moral of the story and you don't have Christ at the center, then you not only lose the gospel foundation that's rooted in Jesus, but here's what you do. You end up just giving moral platitudes to people. The thing that brings such force to these realities is the fact that Jesus was bruised and therefore he sympathizes. I I love this. In Scripture, when there is a problem, the answer is not something abstract and hard to get at. It's not ultimately a philosophical outlook where we just need to understand and see things different, right? That's the way the Stoic philosophers philosophers were. Um, Epictetus, Seneca, um, all of these men, they taught us that if you could only see your circumstances differently, then things would change, 
And that is not the message of Christ. That is not the Christian message. And that's certainly not the message here. The message is not, you just need to see your circumstances differently. The answer instead is not abstract or an idea at all. It is a person. It is the person of Jesus. That's, that's who the answer is. It's a who, not a what. It's not an idea. It's a person. The answer is not an idea. It's the person of Jesus. The, the writers of Scripture always see some quality in Jesus, some capacity in Jesus to rescue. And they don't see something in us. They see something in Jesus. They take us away from ourselves and toward him. And that's what, that's what I want you to see here. But I also think that if I got up here and I said, Jesus was merciful, Jesus was kind, Jesus cared for others, but we didn't hear anything about the work that God plans to do in us and through us, we would also be hearing only half the truth. So just as Jesus served a bruised ministry of his own, he calls his followers to serve in weakness. He calls us to live a bruised life too. Go around this room, ask each person who has walked with the Lord for very long, have you been bruised in your walk with God? And I am certain that every one of them would say, yes, I carry scars, I carry hurts. Just like Paul was able to literally point at his own body and say, I've been whipped, I've been stoned, uh, I was dead, I was brought back, I have experienced hurt upon hurt, and I am covered in scars, and I'm hardly recognizable as a person. Each of us could say the same thing. We all know what it is to hurt and be bruised. And Jesus is saying something to us as well about ourselves as weak people who don't serve in strength and ease. Why would I say that? Am I just making this up? Am I moralizing? Am I doing the thing that, that, we're also, that I'm, I'm so afraid of doing? Look at 2 Corinthians 1.3. In 2 Corinthians 1.3, Paul says something here. He tells us that Jesus is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort which, with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. We, it, it's irresponsible not to make an application here. Um, Paul roots the mercy that we are meant to show to others in the mercy Jesus has shown to us. In other words, the bruises that we experience allow us to minister to others who are bruised as well. Paul actually applies this to his own experiences in churches. Um, if you kept reading in, in that passage in 2 Corinthians, a few verses later, Paul begins talking about a man in the church who had previously opposed him. And Paul is very concerned about the reaction of the church in Corinth to this guy. Because this is somebody who opposed Paul, he opposed Paul's ministry, and Paul, instead of saying, yeah, really lean on this guy, really lean on this guy, he made my life miserable, he needs to know, he needs to know what it's like. Instead, look what Paul does, he says, you should turn to forgive and comfort him, or else he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow, so I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. I mean, think about 
think about this. This is a beautiful moment in Paul's letter. This is a man that did him harm. He's a man that undercut Paul's ministry. And Paul says, forgive him. Comfort him. Don't, I, don't want, I don't want him to become hopeless because of his sin. That's not the goal. That's not what Jesus wants for him. And because of that, it's not what I want for him. In other words, you know, I'm guilty of thinking of Paul as this hard man. I'm guilty of thinking of Paul, and, and I think a, a lot of Christians are guilty of thinking about Paul as somebody who is maybe a little bit lacking in grace in some ways, right? If you look at his, at his life and as his ministry, one of the things you see is that he will lean on anybody who needs it, right? He sees Peter eating with Gentiles, and, and he goes like DEFCON 1 on him. And doesn't, he doesn't do it gently. He does it publicly. He makes a big deal about it. He, and so, for some of us, we'd be like, Paul, you're so hard on this guy. You should have just taken him aside privately. And Paul says, no, it has to be in public because the sin was in public. Or you think of John Mark who abandoned Paul uh, on his missionary journeys. And so he refuses to take John Mark later on when he shows up again. He says, no, I'm not taking this guy with me. And you look at Paul's ministry and you think, man, this is a hard guy. This is a hard man. He really, he really leans on people and, he's, and he would be a tough man to sin around. You know, you think that that would be the result. And yet here, he's really worried that the people in Corinth are going to be so angry with this man that they will break him. He doesn't want them to break this man. We need to have a humble attitude when we are dealing with someone who is a bruised reed. Paul fears that this man is a bruised reed. And he says, we've got to deal gently with this man. Isn't Paul speaking from experience? As someone who himself persecuted Christians and threw them into prison and pursued them to the ends of the earth if he possibly could have and was on his way to do that when he was converted, doesn't he speak from his own bruises? He sees, yes, this man opposed me, but you know what? I oppose Jesus. And because of that, how can I be hard on this man? Do you have a tendency to lay down the law? Are you the kind of person to demand accountability? It's only right. Maybe even to the point of drawing blood. You should be reminded from Scripture that just as Jesus has been merciful to us, we are meant to be merciful Jude 22 and 23 says this really well. It says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Show others mercy with fear. What is he saying? He's saying, have mercy on the bruised reeds. Paul, again, talks about how to deal with someone who's caught in sin. And Matthew pointed this out last week, actually. Does this sound like someone laying down the hard-edged law across someone's back? If anyone is caught in a transgression... You who are, who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. We just read this last week. Do you get the picture? Jesus is our merciful priest. He doesn't break the bruised reed. We don't get to say, well, Jesus is merciful. I'm going to be the just lawgiver. Jesus won't break the bruised reed, but I can. Is that, is that, is that what we're supposed to believe? You say, you don't know how bad others have hurt me or how how they've hurt others. This person needs to be dealt with harshly. No. 
If anyone deserved to be the harsh disciplinarian, it was Jesus. In fact, I don't know if I've said this here or if I said this to, to somebody in a conversation, but I, I did once say this, that, that if, if I was Jesus, I would have walked around angry all the time, surrounded by idiots, surrounded by sinners, surrounded by people who all see the world totally wrong. How do you not feel so angry at that? And he was as gentle as could be. He was as gentle as could be. What gives you the right, you bruised reed, to break someone else when he mended you up? Be merciful. Show the mercy of Jesus. Show the mercy that you've seen firsthand. I dare say it is, it is, a, it is a sign that Christ has not worked on our hearts if we will not show mercy to someone who is in the same place that we were in. See, Jesus calls his own people to minister to one another. You know, obviously, he calls pastors to deal with members of the church. What does he say in 1 Peter 5? He says, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Um, Peter knows there are bruised reeds among the flock, and he's telling pastors, he's telling elders in the church, treat them like Jesus did. One of the Puritans said that if you preach to people's hurts, you'll never lack for an audience. You know, hurt is one of the most common realities of life in a fallen world. And, you know, you know we see the, you look at the, look at the house of prayer in our, in our church bulletin, and one of the things you notice there is just the things that are absent, right? Um, people are happy to say pray for health issues, right? Uh, if somebody's looking for a job, they might say pray for my job, um, if somebody has a, fa- has a loved one who's in a hard place, they might say, pray for my loved one. Um, you know what doesn't go in house of prayer? I'm depressed. You know what doesn't go in house of prayer? I have anxiety, and I had a panic attack yesterday. You know what doesn't go in the house of prayer? Uh, I am brokenhearted over the sin that I committed yesterday. I hurt somebody, and I don't, I don't have it in me to say I'm sorry. Just the sort of stuff that we don't put in the house of prayer, right? So you get a very one-sided sort of a picture of the needs of the church if you just go to the house of prayer. The reality is the world is a place of hurt. The world is a place of suffering. Uh, the world is a place where relationships are fractured and hurt because either of misunderstandings or just because we grade on each other for one reason or another. And so much of the suffering that, that I see from the perspective of the pastor, the emails that I get, a lot of it is just doesn't ever show up and people don't understand it or know about it necessarily. There is an awful lot of suffering and hurt out there. Do you know what, though? As hard as it is to have an up-close seat to the hurts of people, you also get an up-close view of what the Lord does through those hurts in time. Right? The Lord takes those hurts and actually uses them in very powerful ways. Um, I've shared this in the past. This isn't going to be news, but it's just another application of something that we've lived with. My wife and I have lived with for 20 years now. Um, 20 years ago, Aaron and I lost two beautiful twins. They were born too early. Um, we've shared about that over the years, and I, I could tell you about it now, but I already have before. But here's the thing that I've noticed is that when we share about that, inevitably she has women come up to her and say, I have experienced this as well, and they're able to talk to each other, and they're able to connect in a way that they wouldn't have before, right? And the same thing for me as a father. I can have guys come up to me and say, we've been through this too, right? Right? 
we were bruised by that. It was such a bruise that it still left a mark on us. It's something that we still think about 20 years later with tears in our eyes, right? And your hurt may not be that hurt. You may have something else that you carry, some other scar that you carry, some other bruise that you carry. Um, but you know what? Isn't this exactly what Paul is saying? We comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves were comforted. We were bruised and Christ nursed us back and now our own bruises become a testimony that our hurting, other hurting people need. And I've seen this proven out over and over again. I can't tell you how many Christians have told me that they experienced something horrible, but God used them later to minister to somebody who was also hurt. Something about knowing that, that you don't just think of their hurts as an academic or a philosophical reality makes people willing to hear what you have to say. I remember I was preaching on the circuit in Mississippi, and there was this one country church that I always went to, um, Oldenburg, Mississippi. If you, if you Google that, you won't even find it. I'm not joking. <laughs> maybe now. Maybe now. It's been a few years. But I was preaching on the circuit. I was preaching in Oldenburg. I was, um, um, and there was a, a student who had just started preaching on the circuit, and when you're a student first preaching on the circuit, you know, you just, you just have to pray for these churches because they're about to hear somebody preach who doesn't know how to do it and who's probably going to get up and say some very academic-sounding stuff and, you know, they just really need to grit their teeth and get ready. Um, but I remember I went to preach at Oldenburg and there was a new guy on the circuit right before me, the, the week before me. And so when I show up, I'm, I'm meeting with the elders. There was two of them. There were five people in the church and there were two elders in the church. And I was making conversation with the elder, and I asked how it went last week. And the elder said, that boy knows the Bible well enough, but I don't think he's ever been hurt. And I thought, wow, I probably preach like that, you know. At the time, I thought it was an awfully harsh thing to say about this kid, but now, you know, this side of 40, you know, this side of a number of hurts and sufferings, I, I get it. It's hard to listen to a sermon on suffering from someone who's lived a charmed life. It just is. Have you ever heard platitudes or cliches from someone who has no idea what it's like to be hurt? Yeah. The life of Jesus was a life of bruising. The life of Jesus was a life of affliction. Nothing in his life came from someone who walked two feet off the ground. Jesus was bruised so that he could help the bruised. I hope that because of Christ and his help toward you, you will one day be able to look at the hurts you've experienced and see that God was preparing you to share the very comfort and mercy you received with someone else who badly needed it. And they weren't going to be helped by platitudes. They were not going to be helped by somebody who walked two feet off the ground and lived a charmed life. It's the person who was hurt who is able to help the person who was hurt. Jesus was bruised to help the bruised. Will you trust God with your present hurts as well? Will you trust him not only to heal your bruises, but to use your experiences so that you can point others to the same healing work of Jesus? Because our hurts have been mended by Jesus, you know, we're able to take people to the same one who healed us. Now, I hope you see this today, that God takes seriously our sufferings. He doesn't downplay it. He doesn't write it off. He doesn't deny its reality. He doesn't say, well, it's not so bad. He doesn't say, you're imagining things. Instead, Jesus does the opposite because in Christ, God entered into all of this with us. So instead of escaping, instead of 
living in denial, Jesus takes our pain and our suffering and our sorrow seriously to its conclusion. And in our pain, he binds us up because he came for the bruised reeds. Have you come to the end of yourself yet? Have, have you seen that your sin, what your sin has done to you? Have you seen how it's, it's hurt your relationship with God? It's hurt your relationship with other people. God does not leave you to waller in that sense. Instead, he says, the bruised reed he will not break. If you come to him, he won't break you. If you come to him, he'll mend you and he'll restore you. Even if Christians have done a poor job of ministering the love and help that Jesus gives to you, Jesus himself is the perfect minister. Will you trust him? Will you go to him? Will you cast yourself upon him? Will you confess the sin that is at the core of your own hurt, knowing that he himself was tempted and bruised and weak? Will you commit your hurts to him and and your sin to him, knowing that he too was beset by these things? If you come to him today, he promises that he'll receive you. Let's pray. What beautiful promises you have for us today, O Lord. You know how easily astray we can wander. You know how weak and frail our own hearts and our own lives are. You know, O God, of our need for you. And we confess it. And just as you've been merciful to us, would you make us merciful to those who suffer? Would you make us merciful to those who doubt? Would you make us merciful to those who need a loving hand? Would you make us merciful to those who need a word of encouragement? That we could comfort others with the same truths by which we have been comforted. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.